So um, I'm here to talk about history of the future. Back in 2010, uh, the British Museum and the BBC Radio 4 uh, started a series called A History of the World in 100 Objects. And the idea was that it would go and tell the history of humanity from two million years ago, from a stone axe all the way up to present day. So it covered a stone chipping tool and a mummified human, to Spanish pieces of eight, and a Mexican codex map, all the way up to a modern credit card. And each episode was about 10 minutes long, and they would have guests on to talk about these objects. And when I first heard about this, I thought it sounded like an absolutely stupid idea, because, you know, if it's about physical objects, don't we have to see the object to learn more about it? Like, surely a radio show would be the worst thing to do as opposed to, you know, YouTube or something else. And it turns out I was completely wrong, because if the stories are good enough and they're compelling enough, then it doesn't matter whether you can actually see the object. And I actually fell in love with the series. I thought it was such an interesting way of thinking about the future, not just through grand narratives or big trends uh, or even particular people, but through individual objects. And when the show finished in 2010, I immediately wanted to go and write the next 100 objects going into the future. So um, this is the second edition of, of a book that I wrote. I wrote a book uh, in 2013 called A History of the Future in 100 Objects. And it basically was obviously directly inspired by this. And it, the framing of it was basically uh, that the book is written by historian in the year 2100, and this historian is looking back at the past 100 years and picking out the 100 most important objects that they felt represented the century. And so that included things like smart drugs that would improve your intelligence, new kinds of fashion that would combine the real world and augmented reality, and a complex of funerary monuments in West Texas, built by billionaires who want to be remembered forever. Um, and it turned out the book was way harder for me to write than I possibly imagined. Um, it took far longer. I thought it was going to take one year. It took me three years. And so I want to talk a little bit about how I went about writing the book, how you might try and do the similar thing, maybe on a smaller scale that won't be quite as painful and a little bit faster to accomplish. So I'm going to be talking about basically three things, uh, objects, uh, a hundred of them, and history. So the first thing is about centering around objects, being specific. So I think a really common problem that a lot of speakers have actually identified in the last couple of days has been thinking about the future is often really general. Uh, it, it relies on grand narratives you know, big trends, like the line goes up, you know, solar power is this expensive, it's going to be this cheap in the future. AI is this powerful, it's going to be this powerful in the future. You know, life expectancy is here, it's going to be up here in the future. And I find that kind of thinking really annoying. Um, it, it becomes sort of really generalized. And those kind of grand narratives often, while they're very appealing, can make you ignore 
the exceptions, the things that don't really fit that narrative. And I think that writing about objects forces you to be specific. And when I mean objects, I mean physical, individual objects, not just about a car or a driverless car or even a Tesla. I mean like a specific individual car. And it makes you think about a specific time, a specific place, a person or peoples. And it forces you to think about the path and the future and the history of that object. So how it was made, how it was designed, and how it was used. Because those are completely different things. People design things for one purpose, and other people use them in a completely different way. And so it's really exciting to think about objects uh, in that way. And so it, it, it's interesting, because Joanne sort of talked a bit about BBSs um, in her talk. And um, you know, one of the things I've become really interested in recently is about uh, the history and the future of the internet. So if you go into a bookstore and you go to the technology section, um, as I do now, I'm just obsessed because I've got a book coming out, so I'm just looking at all the competition. Like, look, at all these, look at all these books which are just terrible, and my one's going to be better. And there's so many books that are about just AI is good, AI is bad, social media is good, social media is bad. It's basically trying to cover these massive subjects. Uh, it's impossible. It's really impossible to do that. And I've become far more interested in books that are trying to be a lot more specific. And I think those specific books teach you a lot more about the whole. So here's three books that I became really interested in recently. The first one is Minitel. Anyone from France knows what Minitel is. Kind of France's state-created internet, which is just wilder and kind of weirder than I possibly imagined in the terms of that France basically manufactured millions of Minitel terminals and gave them away to people for free. I can't even imagine the UK or US doing that anymore. Um, there's another book, When All Technologies Were New, which is about the growth of telegraphy and, um, and about telephones. Because you know, once upon a time, those were cutting edge, and people developed new languages and new ways of talking to each other and new ways of trying to make things cheaper and more expensive. And then the, more, uh, the one on the, on the right, the modem world, talks about history of social media through bulletin board systems. So instead of just thinking that social media equals Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter, we have a history of social media that goes before that. And I find it just so much more interesting trying to be really specific, as these books are, in terms of looking at specific bulletin boards, people. So I really, really kind of have to encourage you to think about specificity and to try and seek that out when you learn about things. And so here's some prompts uh, to think about if you're thinking about objects. You know, how big is this object that you're imagining that might be in the future? For instance, we talk a lot about augmented reality and Google Glass. You know, we actually made a version of a zombies run for Google Glass. Now, how heavy is this headset going to be? Like, how big is it going to be? Will it fit people, everyone's heads? You know, is it going to be big enough for, uh, for everyone? Is it going to be too small for people? You know, are they fragile? Are they strong? People ask me, oh, can you, can you make an augmented reality running game? I'm like, the problem is it sort of bounces around on your head as you're running. You'll get sick. You know, you'd have to wear goggles, not glasses, if you're running. And so all these things, it just forces you to be really specific about how these things are going to work. 
You know, what does it smell like? You know, what are these things in the future going to smell like? What does it feel like? Is it going to be comfortable using this piece of technology, a driverless car? Are people going to be comfortable doing that? Are they going to be nervous? Who made the object? You know, not just the company or the designer, but who physically created the object? These are the things that I try and talk about in the book, you know, looking at the materials that comprise it. And how are people using it in unexpected ways? And how does the object end? We'd like to talk about the growth of the metaverse, of virtual reality, of all these things. And you know, we kind of try not to think about the fact that all technologies eventually come to an end. At least they stop growing. And it's useful to think when you talk about an object, you know, where does it go? And that's the nice thing about trying to think about things from a historical standpoint rather than just looking forward into the future. Um, I want to talk about volume. Um, and so this is about why I chose to write 100 objects rather than 10, which would have been a lot easier. Um, I, I think that narrowing your gaze allows you to widen it. You know, like I said before, I think you know, grand narratives like the history of humanity, you know, like Yuval Noah Harari tries to do in Sapiens, or the metaverse, you know, as a new future of, of digital, or as Tiga talked about this morning, the idea of the environment as a system. You know, these when you try and explain the entire world of all of technology with just one idea, you don't really explain anything at all. It's just incredibly reductive. Um, it's really appealing, but it's very it, it, it doesn't really explain as much as you want to. So instead of thinking about one idea, I think trying to think of a hundred ideas in my case, over 100 years, spanning everything from fashion and climate change and politics and games and sex, you're forced to admit that the future is not just about one thing. It's not even just about climate change. It's about many things. And that's why you need many stories, not just one story to explain the world. This is a list of rejected objects from the first edition of my book, which I, I didn't end up doing. I did the one at the top. I didn't do any of the other ones. There are some things here which I kind of wish I did, like the pandemic. Um, I, thought, I kind of thought it's kind of obvious. People have been writing about pandemics already, so why should I do that? But I was like, oh, yeah. Starts in Pearl River Delta Super City. SARS vaccine in six months. Cure in just a few hours. I mean, I think that when you, when you start trying to think about all these different things, then you start realizing, oh, wow, like anything, anything could happen. You know? I thought, oh, pandemic, it's not going to happen. Who cares? I'm not going to write about that. Um, you know, maybe I should have done 200 objects. Um, I also had a really high volume of different types of stories. So I initially imagined that all 100 stories would be written as if by a future historian. And then I quickly realized this is just not going to work at all. It's just a terrible idea. Because imagine trying to explain a credit card to someone in 1870. Like, you could do it. I mean, they're not stupid. But you would have to go and explain microchips and computer networks and the massive growth of consumerism, you know, and, and uh, all these different things. And all of those things kind of existed in bits and pieces, you know, even in the 19th century. But it wouldn't really make sense for a historian to do that. So. I decided to write a lot of the stories in a different style um, of found materials. 
And so the ones that I liked writing, and you might like writing, um, are things like instruction manuals. I'd write an object as if I was writing the instruction manual for a specific type of tool. Or an interview, or an FAQ, magazine article, diaries, even technical bug reports for an imaginary you know, new computer system. And that sort of thing really helps keep up the variety. And it's something that I think when you try and write 100 things, you sort of get bored and, and tired. And so trying to keep up the variety means that you don't end up beating an idea to death. Um, the third thing I want to talk about is owning your biases. So there's a lot of books about the, about the future. They're written all the time. I think what I tried to do differently in my book is that it's written by a historian in the year 2100. And that framing tries to acknowledge the fact that it's, it's a biased, it's a partial account of the past future, right? Um, it's, not it's not trying to be completely objective. And the fact that it's written by a person rather than me saying, here's what's definitely going to happen in the future, gives you the excuse or like the remit to include smaller stories, like about a specific person, right, who maybe wouldn't count in some massive grand narrative of the future. Oh, you know, look at this artist who we don't care about anymore because we can use AI to go and create art, you know. Trying to create, include those smaller stories is really important. One of the most interesting uh, essays I've read about history is by an author, historian called E.H. Carr. And he wrote this essay in this collection called The Historian and His Facts, which is obviously he's imagining a very specific type of historian, uh, male. Um, history is obviously built from facts, right? But how do you select those facts? How do you account for the biases of those sources? And who chose to include those facts in the history? Errors compound when historians learn from other historians when they learn from other historians. So everyone who writes about the future says they learn from history. But there's no objective version of history. So the question is, what history are you learning from? I think we can try and correct for the biases of past historians who have ignored certain people or certain places or certain technologies. But we also have to admit the way we construct our history and our futures is personal. And so I think you should just go and own your biases. You should just go and say, look, I'm going to write my future, and I'm going to choose to include these things, because I think some things are being ignored, and I might get it wrong, but at least I'm trying to do it better. Um, the final thing I want to talk about is optimism. One of the things I've like, heard about throughout the last couple of days is utopia and dystopia. Everyone's kind of like, how do you stay hopeful? How do you, you know, like, how do you stay hopeful when the world is warming, and how do you do it in a way that isn't completely naive? Well, I think there's two forms of optimism that you can have about the future. And the first kind of optimism comes from a mostly uncritical kind of technological viewpoint that goes something like this. Conditions for humanity have improved over the last thousands, tens of thousands of years. You know, lifespans have gone up, you know, entertainment has gotten better, that sort of thing. And so if you, if you extrapolate the line, if the line keeps on going up, then 
everything will just keep magically getting better. Like, we don't need to worry about climate change. Someone will just go and solve climate change. It's fine. So don't try and change things too much today. And of course, this kind of vision of the future is what is really being pushed by the rationalist and the effective altruist movement, which you'll be hearing about a lot because they have really good PR. Um, and there's a new book coming out, What We Owe the Future. It's, uh, I do not agree with that book. Um, and a lot of this thinking is now sponsored by corporations and billionaires. This is a screenshot from the FTX Future Fund. FTX is a crypto billionaire funded company. And they are basically paying people to write short stories and movies about the future that are kind of evidence-based and basically optimistic. They want people to write optimistic visions of the future, which is slightly creepy, because I, I don't think you need to be paid to write about that stuff if you believe it. And this wouldn't really matter too much, except for the fact that thinking about the future is always really thinking about the present. And it's really about justifying the decisions we're making in the present. So you can probably agree that I don't really agree with this kind of optimism, even if I understand its appeal. So, okay, what's the second form of optimism? Well, it's one that I've tried to bake into my writing, into my imagination, and it's about human nature rather than about technological progress. I am really interested in technology. That's what I do in my day-to-day. -day. I used to be a neuroscientist. I'm like obsessed by gadgets, but I think there's a, there's a better form of optimism, and it's kind of quieter. And it's best expressed by this author, Mohsen Hamid, who had, this is his new book, it's really good. Um, I once designed a game with him. And uh, his optimism isn't about individuals, in that we might personally live forever. And it's not about technology, in that technology might solve all our problems in the future. It's about a really small thing, which is that it's about a belief that people, that everyone, has something of value yet to give. So, you don't need to believe in people becoming angels. You don't need to forgive everyone who you think has done something wrong. But you need to believe in a future that says, no matter who you are, everyone still can do something that is valuable to someone else, right? Um, and I think that's a really hard thing to believe sometimes because you, it, it, it's really difficult to, to kind of forget about the past in a way. But you have to go and say, I think that people can be better um, and, and try and encourage that. And so that means trying to imagine a future where people have that freedom, a future where everyone has dignity that is recognized no matter who they are, and a future where we have all the time and the resources, and the energy, and the capability to give something of our own to everyone else. So I've talked about different ways in which you can think about the future, but I think that's why you should write about the future, and it's why I write about the future. So thank you very much. <laughs>